One of the things that drives me crazy is how many team building activities and exercises people do. We're going to have a mixer or a party. And the, the problem is that people don't really mix it mixers. They mostly hang out with the people who are similar to them, who they already know. So what is it that they're possibly going to learn about trusting each other when everything is easy and fun? Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations to share what we're learning about the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm Chris Congdon, the editor of 360 Magazine, and today we get the chance to bring you a conversation with Adam Grant. Adam is a Wharton professor and an organizational psychologist who studies how to make work not suck. Adam is the author of Originals, Give and Take, and co-author of a book called Option B that he wrote with Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg. He also hosts his own TED original podcast called Work Life that goes inside unconventional workplaces to explore the ideas we can all use to make work more meaningful and creative. Adam, I know you're super busy. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You know, we do a lot of thinking about uh, creative work, and I was really fascinated because I feel like there's so much pressure on us to just create faster than ever before and to come up with new ideas and, and get them going really quickly. But yet, you know, you were talking about an idea recently that's kind of counterintuitive to that, this whole idea about going slow or kind of letting ideas incubate. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I think it's it kind of annoys me, I have, I have to say as a disclaimer, because I, I always like to be the person who's getting things done ahead of time. Yeah. And, you know, if, if a lot of people are procrastinators, I'm a procrastinator. Uh, you know, I, I feel like whatever the deadline is, I'm getting a head start and I'm finishing way early. And so, you know, the idea of, of working slowly, it feels inefficient. It makes me feel impatient. I really don't like it at all. But... As a social scientist, I like to do everything based on evidence or as much as I can. And so, you know, the evidence is growing and increasingly clear that eureka moments are just not that common. That most of the time when you're trying to solve a creative problem, your first idea is not your best idea. It's your most obvious idea. And that very frequently you need to rule out the obvious in order to, to get to the original, which means waiting around, right? considering lots of possibilities, recognizing that sometimes it's hard to be creative when, you know, you're, you're trying to create the most direct path to your goal and that a lot of creativity arises indirectly when you're not focused on the problem or the task, you know, when you're doing something else entirely. And, you know, as frustrating as I think that is, it, it describes the creative processes of so many great thinkers. And, you know, it's well reflected in the evidence. I think it's not a coincidence that, Da Vinci, for example, was a great procrastinator. Uh, Steve Jobs, Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln all put off some of their, their greatest works because they weren't there yet. And they felt like they needed to wait for the best ideas to come. It's so interesting when you talk about that because I was thinking about our design team who was working on this really wicked problem, trying to create a new material that kind of worked like carbon fiber but was a, a lot cheaper and a lot more accessible. And these guys... You know, they they were working on it so hard, and then they realized that the technology kind of wasn't there, and so they had to let the idea sit for a while. And over the time that they let it sit, then new things emerged in terms of the technology, and they were able to come up with something that was so much better than what they had originally started out doing. But that was literally a gap of, like, 
six or eight years, you know, between the time they started and then they moved on with the project. So uh, it was just fascinating to think about how that behavior of waiting, which feels so counterintuitive to a lot of us who are just driven to complete things, like how that can actually help us come up with better ideas. Yeah, I think, you know, in, <laughs> in a lot of cases that happens, right? So, you know, there's the the classic story of the post-it note being, you know, a solution waiting for a problem. And if I remember correctly, it, it took six years between a chemist, you know, sort of accidentally inventing this glue that wouldn't stick and a colleague saying, huh, this would make a really good bookmark. And, you know, some, sometimes that incubation period is very, very long. But it can really pay off when, when you give it time. And when you think about that, it, it kind of leads me to another question that I've been thinking about, which is in order to go with an idea, in order to let it have that kind of incubation you have to have a lot of trust within your team because it's kind of scary to be vulnerable and let something kind of percolate for a while. And, you know, what we always think about is trust being kind of like a, a conduit, if you will, or, or kind of a, a lubricant of collaboration that it, it can get things going. But developing trust is really hard, and you've you've been doing a lot of thinking about that, Right. I have in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> so with trust, I mean, you know, we, we have a tendency to think that uh, trust is all about how much we like somebody or how much, how familiar we are. You know, we have similar backgrounds. Maybe we went to the same university or something, but, but it's not just about that, right? It's not just about likability. Yeah. You know, this, this was something that, that really didn't hit me until I, I started working on this episode of my work-life podcast with astronauts. And the premise was that I was going to try to figure out how to build trust when lives are on the line. And, you know, sadly, they didn't let me go to the International Space Station. <laughs> but I talked to <laughs> a crew of astronauts who'd been there and uh, the, the leadership training expert who brought them out into the wilderness to get to know each other. And they all told me the same thing, which is that trust is not about how much you like your crew. It's about how much you can count on your crew. And, you know, that really becomes a question of competence and character. So we don't have to have that many traits in common, or we don't have to come from the same place or believe in the same things. As long as we believe that, you know, that, that I can count on you to do a good job and, you know, to have my best interests or the mission at heart. And I may not like you, but I can still believe that you're dependable and reliable to carry through with that mission. And, you know, it was, pre- it was pretty fun and thought-provoking to get a window into how these people who come from, in some cases, not only different backgrounds, but opposing backgrounds. You know, in the cases of uh, one crew of astronauts, actually, uh, they'd been enemies. So, you know, you have these Americans flying to a Russian space station where both astronaut groups, or actually it's astronauts and cosmonauts, I should say, have, um, have been in the military. And they could have been fighting each other in the Cold War. And now they're supposed to live together and work together and trust each other. And so understanding, you know, that 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 trust comes from clarity of mission. It comes from recognition of competence. It comes from being a little bit vulnerable with each other so that you can see when you take a risk that the other person doesn't harm you as opposed to saying, yeah, we're going to be best friends. That was uh, that was a neat aha. So I, I've never seen the inside of a space station either. Um I have seen a lot of workplaces, and I know that you get to a lot as well because, you know, you work with so many different people around the world. Are there any things that you see when you go into workplaces that you go, oh, you know, this is not going to help build trust or it's not going to help build the kind of culture that organizations are trying to build? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that that drives me crazy is how many team building activities and exercises people do. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, in in, uh, the author Dan Coyle's language is all about shallow fun. It's, you know, we're going to have a ping pong tournament or we're going to have a mixer or a party. And the problem is that people don't really mix it mixers. They mostly hang out with the people who are similar to them, who they already know. And they also don't have to overcome any challenges together. So what is it that they're possibly going to learn about trusting each other when everything is easy and fun? If you want to build trust, you actually want to have deep fun where, you know, instead of doing something that's, that's kind of simple and lighthearted, you actually work with a group of people to solve a hard problem that matters. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's when the bonds of trust are really forged, when, you know, when character gets tested when you see who people are when, you know, it's not necessarily the, the most pleasant experience moment to moment. And when you're actually creating something or trying to solve a problem or accomplish something together. And so I would love to see more organizations say, look, if we're going to bring people together who need to trust each other, let's actually have them work together. Similarly, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is when I walk around different workplaces and, you know, I hear organizations talking about wanting to build that kind of deep trust within a culture, but then you see places that are set up that are really hierarchical, you know, to where it feels like there's a lot of boundaries that are set up between people. So you you feel like there's a sense of us and them kind of a separation as opposed to people actually feeling like it's okay for me to know what's going on. It's okay for me to be a part of this or to feel like I can participate in all of that. So to that end, I mean, we, we think a lot about physical spaces being like the body language of an organization. When you walk yeah. into a place, right, it, it tells you something about the way people behave and the way they get things done. And, and I'm just curious about, you know, of all the places that you go, like are there things that you see that you'd say – wow, you know, when I see that, this is, this is what it communicates to me. This is what it tells me. Oh, I think office design is huge when it comes to sending signals about hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So even the whole idea of a corner office. I don't know about you, but if I'm leading an organization, I don't want to be hidden off in the corner yeah. right, in my own territory. <laughs> I want to be in the center of it where the action is. Uh, as I think Roosevelt put it, in the arena. And, you know, when I, when I walk into companies where there's a separate floor for executives and, you know, they all have their own offices that you have to go through many, many layers to get to, it's like, you know, you're, you're in a labyrinth and there's no way anybody <laughs> could possibly navigate. You know, if I have an idea, how do I get it to somebody who can do something about it? You know, that doesn't mean, though, that I'm a big fan of open plan offices, right, which I think are, they often wreak havoc for introverts who get overstimulated easily. But I think there's a middle ground there to say, look, you know, we we actually want to reduce power distance. That means our leaders should sit in the same general territory as the people who work below them. But we should also give everybody a chance to close the door, you know, to work in quiet when, you know, when they need to focus. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We've actually had a big experiment here of literally doing what you just said is putting all of the leaders in our organization like right in the middle of the traffic flow to where there's no way you can get from point A to point B without kind of moving through that space. And and at first, I, I think it kind of freaked people out a little bit like, is it okay? You know, like, can I walk through here? But then once we kind of started getting used to it, it was like, oh, 
they want to talk to us and to really get their finger on the pulse about what's going on. We, we shouldn't have to whisper. It's better that we're all talking and uh, working with each other. But it really is, it, it's a big culture shift to do something like that. Tell me then why you think these Byzantine bureaucratic designs persist. Well, you know, I think it's kind of what we what we know, and and I think for a lot of people, um, it's kind of about status, which we don't really want to say. But you know, I've I've talked with people over the years who feel like, wow, I, I worked really hard to get to this place where I get a corner office, you know, and and if I don't get my corner office, what does that say about? me and, you know, what I've accomplished. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think people really want to admit to that sometimes, but, and sometimes just feeling that sense, you touched on it a minute ago when you're talking about introverts. There are also leaders who say, you know, I, I need a place or time to think. Like, I, I can't be on and in front of people all the time. So how do I have a place where I can feel like I've got permission to kind of get away and be able to think a little bit? Yeah, I guess that, that would be a second office. <laughs> kind yeah. of like a, like a vacation destination, right? You know, the status dynamic. Yeah, or maybe it's something that you, you know, you have to plan for and figure out a way to create those kinds of places to get away and rejuvenate that, like, everybody has access to, not just maybe somebody who's a leader in the organization. I'd be a big fan of that. Yeah. So the, another thing I was curious what you're seeing about is, you know, we hear a lot of people, and this kind of ties to what you're talking about with introverts or maybe people who feel like, Sometimes the workplace can be just full of disruptions and interruptions, and or maybe it's just too much stimuli. So people saying on one hand, like, I need to go home, or I need to go to a coffee shop, or I need to go someplace else to be able to do work. There's this other kind of tension, this kind of tug of war going on with people who also in organizations who feel like, hey, we need people to be together. If we're going to solve yeah. some of these big, wicked problems, we've got to actually talk to each other and build trust. So... Uh, you know, I'm just curious what you see about that kind of tug of war about how organizations can balance what people need as well as what they need for their culture. Well, I think I think balance is the key word there. I love this study that The Economist Nick Bloom did where he randomly assigned people in a call center to work from home. And they were 13% more productive and half as likely to quit. And I think that, you know, part of that was them being able to do their own work on their own terms Part of that was a signal of trust from management. And part of that might have been saving commuting time. <laughs> Who knows? Mm -hmm. But I personally think that leaders worry too much about everyone being in the office all the time. There was a meta-analysis that Gajendran and Harrison published of every study they could find looking at the impact of telecommuting on performance and satisfaction and a whole range of outcomes. So we're looking at, you know, over a dozen studies, thousands of people and they found that as long as you're in the office at least two and a half days a week, there aren't any measurable costs. So that, you know, as, as long as people are able to come together for part of the week, mm -hmm. it's fine for them to work independently the rest of the week. And, you know, I think that allowing people that kind of balance and saying, look, we work from home one or two days a week. If we coordinate a little bit on which days those are, then we're in pretty good shape. And yeah, I've had some leaders say, well, but, but how do I monitor them, you know, and make sure that they're working? And my response is, if, if you need to do that, you've failed at leadership because they should find the work meaningful and motivating enough that they want to do it. That's so interesting because we see a very similar kind of pattern where, and I think it comes back to the issue of trust that we were talking about. Like, you know, it used to be that we thought as 
managers or leaders in an organization that your job was to really kind of look over people's shoulders and make sure that they were doing what you told them to do. And so a lot of workplaces felt like they were kind of designed to support that. Now this, as we learn really about how organizations need to shift, giving people that trust to say, you know what, we, we know that you're a grown-up, you know, that you can get your work done in a lot of different places. And if you have the freedom to choose or, the, or some sense of control over the, the course of your day and where you can do your best work, then that's going to enable you to achieve something. It's not going to be me standing over your shoulders, you know, or looking over your shoulders and watching and to see, you know, how you're getting your work done. Yeah, that, that sounds exactly right. And the other thing I would think about a little bit is, you know, just how interdependent the work is. So there, there are some jobs where you have to interact with people closely in order to get the work done. There are others, you know, where a lot of your work is best done independently. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we, we spend enough time thinking about where does each person's job fall in that spectrum? And, you know, within a job, right, which projects and tasks require coordination and which ones don't? And, you know, I think that it's, it's pretty easy for anyone to identify tasks that they do that they don't need, you know, a lot of overlap with other people where you could say, all right, maybe we could let people do those on their own time in their own place. So, Adam, one of the things I, I'm curious about, again, because I know you work with so many different organizations, like of all the organizations you've worked with or the places that you've been seeing how people work, what's something that's really surprised you? Oh, I've been surprised a lot over the past year, especially as I've, you know, I guess as part of doing my work-life podcast, I, I got to pick organizations that I wanted to learn from and that I thought had mastered something, you know, I wish everyone else could learn. And, you know, one of the, I guess one of the biggest surprises is on the status dynamic that you described. I feel like, generally speaking, the people who cling to status cues are the ones who are most insecure about their own status. So being in a corner office is not a signal that you've achieved status. It's a signal that you still desperately seek status, uh, as opposed to feeling like you've, you know, you've, <laughs> you've, you don't need it. And, you know, I even, I even see symbols of this in, in my own world of academia, right, where, you know, I, it bothers me every time a professor has their students call them professor last name uh, as opposed to by their first name. You know, why, why, why do you have to rely on a title for status? Why can't you earn it through, you know, through the right. way that you, you command respect? And, of course, I think there, you know, there are boundaries on that. It's harder for women and minorities to, you know, just have their status taken for granted by people. I think that's something easier to pull off as a white man. But with, with that caveat, you know, I think that I'm always taken aback when I walk into an organization and I get introduced to Dr. Smith or, you know, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Mrs. So-and-so, yeah. Uh, because, you know, we're, we're human beings. We should probably talk to each other on a, on a personal level as opposed to trying to create this awkward professional distance that, that seems to put someone on a pedestal who can't earn it. Yeah, you know, I catch people by surprise sometimes when, you know, they learn that I work for a company that, makes things that makes, you know, furniture that people use in offices. And I haven't had an office for, I don't even know how many years. I don't have an assigned desk or anything like that. And and people look at me kind of funny. Uh, like you work for a company that makes this stuff and you, you don't have your own office. And I've said, well, I don't really want my <laughs> own office, frankly, um, because one, I have so many other places I can choose from that I can work in whatever I want. But when you have offices, people tend to 
leave things there. You know, <laughs> they leave things on your desk and say, hey, <laughs> here's my problem. I'm going to make it your problem. I'm going to leave it on your desk. So uh, without having that, then, you know, we tend to have more spontaneous interactions, whether we're just sitting next to each other in the cafe or, you know, we get on the phone and chat about a problem. But I love that as well, of being able to have kind of that range of options. And But it is interesting. I think as human beings, we still need to feel a sense of importance and, you know, like what we do matters. And I guess for just a final question, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you're seeing about, you know, people coming to work wanting to have a sense of purpose and a sense of, you know, like I'm making a difference. That feels like that's changing from maybe where it was a decade or more ago where having a job was just about a paycheck. Now it feels like people are looking for something else when they come to work. You know, it's interesting. It's something I've been studying my whole career. And, you know, without question, as clear as we get on on these kinds of topics in social science, the strongest driver of meaningful work is feeling that your job makes a difference in the lives of others. You know, so when you think about what gives people a sense of purpose, what makes them feel that their work is worthwhile— it's hugely about feeling that, that your, your work has an impact on others and that if your job didn't exist, other people would be worse off. Now, what's interesting about that is if you just look at surveys done of people, the general social survey is a good example. It's been happening since the early 70s, asking people to rank different features that they want most in a job. And sure enough, you know, starting around 2000, it was number one on that list, which swamped all the other factors, was meaningful work. And yet, if you go back to the 80s and 70s, it was number one then, too. And when you look at, yeah, when you look at generational differences data, what you actually see is that the generations, baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, they all want to have jobs that make a difference in the lives of others. They're all searching for that kind of meaning. And I think that the reason it seems to be spiking now is that we hear about it more because millennials seem to be a little more self-expressive than previous generations. And so, you know, whatever they want might get amplified a little bit in, you know, in how often we, we get information about it. But uh, we, we did some research at Facebook where we, we asked, you know, what, what do you want to, out of work, you know, beyond sort of a job and a salary that meets your basic needs? And what people wanted was three things, a career, a community, and a cause. You know, they wanted to learn and grow and be challenged. They wanted to belong and connect with others. And they wanted to work on, you know, things that, that mattered and helped others. And cause was actually more important as you moved up the age bracket. And so people in their, you know, 40s and 50s actually said that's even more essential to me than people in their 20s and 30s did. And so I think that, you know, there's, there's actually, I would say, the desire for meaningful work is, is universal. It's not unique to any one generation or age group. Well, I think we should all give thanks to anyone who is, you know, kind of elevated this as an issue because now it's something that I think people are talking about, to your point, and um, actually raising that issue. So as you move along in your career, you know, you have the freedom to say, you know what, if I'm going to be working, this is, I do want to feel like I'm making a difference. I do want to feel like I'm doing something that's, you know, maybe not just a pure profit motive, <laughs> you know, that I'm actually, of course, I want to return value to the sh- stakeholders, but why can't I do that and make a difference in the world and make the world a better place while I'm doing it? So, Adam, you know, this has been great. It's been great that you were able to join us. And I just want to say thank you so much for being here and sharing what you're learning as you do your work. Delighted. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Adam Grant, host of the TED Original podcast called Work Life and best-selling author and Wharton professor. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and review it to make it easier for other people to find. You can read more about what we're learning about the places where people work, learn, and heal at 360.steelcase.com. And you can find more podcasts like this one at steelcase.com slash podcasts or on Apple Podcasts.